likely be that he will die. Don't want to even think about that thought. And they brush it aside, maybe even suppressing it in their own thinking, not wanting to understand it. And you see all of this speaking then of the disciples' pride follows. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Mark juxtaposes these two things. One, that the Son of Man, divine God-man, would die for sinners right next to sinners saying, who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? The two things do not go together. The disciples are filled with pride, the very thing that God hates. The book of Proverbs chapter 6 says that there are six things that God hates, seven that are detestable to Him. And the first is this, haughty eyes that look upon others and say, I'm better than you. And you're not nearly as good as me. Now Jesus sees this as a teaching moment. And what he's going to do is redefine what greatness is in the kingdom. Let me mention three points here. First is this, that the gospel conflicts with our expectations for our lives. Here they've come back to Capernaum from the north. This is the place where Jesus has made his home base. It is Peter's hometown. In fact, they may actually be in Peter's house when they gather together here. But along the way, the disciples have had a conversation away from Jesus. This conversation about who is the greatest. And when they arrive, Jesus has a surprising question for them. Verse 33, what were you discussing on the way? And of course, they're silent. None of them answer like little children who've been found out by their parents thinking that they've gotten away with something and somehow Jesus knows. Now we need to understand a little bit about rabbinical teaching to understand why the disciples were even asking this question. Because the rabbis would write about who it is that would sit the closest to God in paradise. And for them, it was the person who was the most just, the most righteous, who would sit even closer to God than the angels. And they had various criteria about who would be closest to God in heaven. In other words, they had asked the question, who is the greatest? And how can we define for ourselves who the greatest person is in the kingdom? And what we see here is the disciples have basically, as the saying goes, drunk the Kool-Aid of, of the rabbis. That is to say, they've, they've soaked up everything that the rabbis have taught regarding who is the greatest in the kingdom. And no doubt they've looked at each other as they've walked along the way and they've thought, well now, John, you haven't done this. Or, Peter, I've seen your sin. And they began to measure each other against themselves. And now as it seemed to be that the time was approaching for Jesus to assume His rightful place as King of the Kingdom, marching into Jerusalem, they're ready to take their place as the greatest in the kingdom. Now let me say this. There's a good and righteous sense of ambition in life. 
There's a healthy sense of ambition that drives us on to be our best at things for God's glory. God's not against ambition per se. But what the disciples have in mind is something altogether different. It's ambition for personal gain. It's not for the advancement of the kingdom. It's not for the glory of God. It's not for the betterment of other people. But rather it's for themselves. It's for their own personal agenda. And the disciples reveal a tendency, I think, that's within each one of us as well. That sense of selfish ambition. I read an article recently about South Korean parents who now recognize that height is one of the key factors for success. And this article starts with a mother who takes her little daughter five years old to receive acupuncture treatment. And while her daughter is screaming and crying and afraid, her mother is saying, now this is for your own good because it will make you tall. South Korea, evidently, there are all of these growth clinics that have spawned and grown up around them because of this desire for increased height. And so this one particular mother spends $770 a month on treatments for her daughter and for her son. A mixture of acupuncture, aromatherapy, and twice-a-day tonics that contain deer antler, ginseng, and other medicinal herbs in the hopes that their child will grow tall in order to be successful. Now we sort of laugh at that. Until we look at ourselves and look at the idolatry that we have of raising the perfect children in our society, shuttling them around from one activity to the other, wanting them to be the best at their musical instrument, the best at soccer, the best at football or baseball or swimming or whatever sport there is, the best at debate and investing so much time and so much energy that the whole life of the family is distorted around the children. And we can fall into the same trap. It's the American ideal, isn't it? Ambition. Wanting the best for ourselves. Our expectations often run counter to the very gospel-driven call that's placed on our lives. The disciples here viewed their call to discipleship as a call to privilege, as a call to entitlement, rather than as a call to service. And unfortunately, we can even ask that question about ourselves. Who of us is the greatest in the church? Maybe not the whole church, but at least this church. Who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who gets the most attention? Our own sinful hearts want to ask that question at times. But not only is the gospel in conflict with our expectation, but the gospel actually lowers our position in relation to other people. It lowers our position in relation to other people. I think this is true, but I think our sin oftentimes wants us to maintain some sense of power and control in relationships. We love people, we love our families, we want to serve them, but 
on some level, we want to maintain at least some level of power and control there. We may repent of our sins. We may serve other people. We may even exalt the people that we love the most. But we still want to maintain some sense of position with people. So that no one fully has the upper hand on us. It may not be in every relationship. But you can probably think about relationships that you have in which that's true. I want to guard myself from being completely vulnerable to this person's control. And I think that's what the disciples are revealing here. Let me say two things about this, this way in which the gospel reorients our position in relation to other people. One, it's, it tells us that we're no longer to view people's worth in relation to ourselves. Look at verse 38. Here after this discussion about who is the greatest, John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now here's a man casting out demons in the name of Jesus and John says, Stop, what are you doing? You're not with our group. You're not following us. Who gives you the right to go and do anything in Jesus' name? Sadly, they were more concerned about who was following them rather than who was following Jesus. Maybe they were angry. Maybe they're angry that this man was able to do what they were not able to do earlier on in chapter 9. Remember that? They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They came down The disciples who had been left down at the bottom of the mountain were not able to cast out this demon. And maybe they're jealous. This man's doing what we're not able to do. And so we're going to exclude him. You're not one of us. You're not following us. I mean, do you grab the line of thinking, teacher, aren't you so proud of us? We have excluded this man because he's not one of us. Aren't you so proud? John has become so intoxicated with being on the inner circle, you might say. He's not only on the inner circle of the twelve, he's on the inner circle of the three. Peter, James, and John. He's been invited to see Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. Now John has become so intoxicated with that reality that he looks at someone else who's serving in Jesus' name and says, stop, you're not following us. I think this is a a tendency within everyone's heart from the time that we are children. Are we in the right circle? Are we on the inner side of things? You know what it was like And some of you who are still growing up, you know what it's like to ask that question. To do things just so you get on the inside of a particular group. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian thinker and writer in the 20th century, gave an essay which is entitled The Inner Ring. And it's in a collection of essays which bound together in a book called The Weight of Glory, one that I would very much recommend to you. But in this book, In this particular chapter, I should say, the inner ring. He discusses the fact that there are various 
rings or circles in society. And that we are all at times trying to get into a particular ring. Maybe even sometimes trying to get out of a particular ring. There are rings that have those who read certain books. Maybe there are rings where people know certain secrets that we don't share with other people. There are rings of those who are on a particular project or a committee. There are rings of those who have been given access. There are rings of those who are needed to make things run. There are rings of those who are recognized, maybe for our work, maybe for our name, maybe for our beauty. There are rings of those who even reject rings. I don't believe in circles and cliques and rings, so I reject those things and I'll form my own with all the other people who reject rings too. The fact is, that's the tendency of the prideful heart is to say, now I want to define myself by whoever I'm with. And if I can be on the inside, well, then I've made it. Maybe I can declare myself even to be the greatest. We have ambitions about these things. Sometimes we even get into various rings and like John, we realize there's a ring within a ring and maybe I need to get into that even tighter group. The worst thing of all is to feel as though we've been left out. To feel as though somehow we haven't been invited in. And what John is doing here is trying to keep the ring in place. You're not following us. You're not one of us. You're not welcome. Stop what you're doing. You can't do anything in the name of Jesus. It's all a desire really just to get in and be on the inside. Lewis goes on to say that the worst part of it all, the worst sin of it all is, as he calls it, the delicious sense of secret intimacy, that you're on the inside with certain people, that you've been approved by certain people, that you've been authorized, you might say. That you've been accepted. And it was John's delight. I'm on the inside and everybody else is on the outside. And what Jesus wants them to see and what I think he wants every disciple to see is that we cannot view other people's worth in relation to ourselves. Because that's what John is doing after all. But rather view everyone else's worth in relation to Jesus. Here he says... Verse 39, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will able be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. He's saying if this person is dedicated to me, they're empowered by the spirit to serve in my name. Do not stop him. That's not a person that can quickly turn aside from me. This person is aligned with me. So what if they're not following you? This person is following you me for the one who is not against us he says is for us he's not the enemy don't try to establish yourself by excluding that person and keeping yourself in your tight little ring instead it's the instruction that he gave earlier anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but also him who sent me. Jesus is wanting us to evaluate people in an altogether different way. And in fact, here, Jesus is saying, you can't have me unless you're willing to have everyone else. Unless you're willing to have the most lowly person of all. That, after all, is the picture of what Jesus is doing by pulling a child in the middle of this living room in this house and saying, now, unless you receive this child. You can't receive me. Because after all, the the child in society, in contradiction to Western modern society, where where children are loved and cared for and protected in many ways. In this particular culture, the child was the very last of all. Just like this morning, we've seen on the video in Sunday school. There are children around the world in other cultures. Who are last of all. And Jesus says, if you don't receive the last, you can't receive me. So Jesus is saying, don't you dare evaluate everybody else. Based on their relationship to you. Rather be willing to receive everyone, even the most lowly of all. God's accounting of rank is the opposite of the world's. Jesus is saying. We need to receive the lowliest if we're even going to receive him. We're no longer to look for the inner ring to seek to be on the inside. But rather, as Paul says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but think of yourselves with sober judgment. To have Jesus is to have everybody else that you would consider to be the lowliest. I don't know about you, but this is something that probes my heart very deeply. If I had to ask myself, who do I consider to be the lowliest? And would I sit down with them and put my arm around them and say, now I'm one of you. That, after all, is what the gospel tells us, isn't it? Jesus has just declared the son of man is going to be delivered up and put to death for sinners. What Jesus is saying there is that the gospel declares that you are the lowliest and I am the lowliest because it took Jesus going to the cross to die for our sins, to make us worthy of God. There is no great person in the kingdom outside of the grace of Jesus. And so he says, if you want me, you need to see yourself as the lowliest. And welcome everybody else that you would consider lowly too. Well, not only do we now redefine how we relate to others, but also we become a servant to all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. We must become in the last position with respect to everyone else that we know. I heard a man speak one time on the topic of a biblical world and life view. And he was talking in particular about how we're to engage in the workplace as Christians. What it means to 
build the kingdom of God in the way in which we handle our work. And he told a story about his dad. He came from a Mennonite background. His father was a farmer. He also had a side business of sharpening tools. And there was a young man in this very small town who wanted to start his own business of sharpening tools as well. Now you can imagine there's not that much business to go around. Wes's father could have started out on this strategy to be the greatest, to stamp out this young business, this young startup, and to say, you're not going to wage in on my territory here. But instead he said, now you come over to my shop. And I'll teach you everything I know. And whatever tools I can't use, I'll give them to you. Whatever business I can't handle, I'll send them your way. Last of all, will be first of all. That's the picture of the gospel, isn't it? The Lord Jesus making himself last of all. That he could make us first of all. He calls us to do nothing less than what he's done for us already. Well, finally, let me mention this one last point very quickly. The gospel also promises a reward to those who serve as Jesus served. Verse 41 here, and speaking about this man who cast out a demon in Jesus' name, Jesus goes on to say, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means Lose his reward. Person who gives a cup of water. To you. Just because you belong to Jesus. Will by no means. Lose their reward. A reward. For a cup of water. It's a gracious reward. It's not one we deserve. It's not one we've merited. One that Jesus delights to give. Because he loves his people. Here this man is given a cup of water and he'll receive a reward in glory. Now sometimes in very interesting providence, the way the Lord works out our own worship is very interesting. This morning we read from Ephesians chapter 6, talking about slaves obeying earthly masters and doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. This he will receive back from the Lord. If you make everyone else first in your life, if you serve them with everything that you have, you will receive back far more in glory. Because Jesus delights to reward those who delight to serve Him. And that's the testimony of the scriptures here. What a great word to us that greatness in the kingdom of God is not reserved for the gifted and talented. It's not reserved simply for the rich and the powerful. It's reserved for the lowly in heart. For all those who would seek to be last and put everybody first. Those are the people who are greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus declared, as you did it to the least of my brothers, you've done it to me. Every small act that you do to serve someone else is not wasted in the kingdom. But Jesus not only uses it for his purposes, 
but delights to reward his people in glory because you've demonstrated the character of the one who has put everybody else before himself. I may have told you this illustration before, but I think it's one of the best that I know of this particular truth. A friend of mine went to Atlanta to speak at a conference, and after he was done, he was very tired. He got on a bus. He was headed back home. He waited for the bus doors to close. There were very few people on the bus. And finally, just before they closed, on walks a rather large woman with a seeing-eye dog and several big bags. And she walked past empty seat after empty seat after empty seat until she came to the back of the bus where he had plopped down expecting not to be interrupted, not to have anyone bother him. And she said, is this seat taken? Of course, he said no, and he moved his bags, and she sat down and got herself situated. They were all crammed in together, the three of them, the seeing-eye dog and the two people. And they began talking. And he asked her, now why are you taking a trip? And she said, well, I go every third weekend to take care of my parents. He said, no, you're blind. How do you do that? And she said, well, I wasn't always blind. I was blinded as a child. There was an illness that came through our town. A couple of my brothers and sisters died, but it just blinded me. And now I go to take care of my parents because I know that house by the, like the back of my hand. And my other sisters go the other weekends during the month to take care of my parents. And so she asked him, now, now what do you do? He said, well, I'm a minister of the gospel. A minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she just smiled and she said, do you know, I love my Lord Jesus. And do you know what he tells me? That when I go and feed my mama and my daddy, that I'm really feeding him. Isn't that a glorious picture? of Putting other people first. Becoming a servant of all. Let's walk in the steps of our Savior. Who became a servant to all. That he might put us first. Let's pray. Our great heavenly father. You are so merciful to us. We have so often sought to. Establish ourselves. To be the greatest. At least the greatest in our own lives. To be on the inner ring. To evaluate ourselves by. The pleasure of knowing that other people aren't where we are. They're not on the inside like we're on the inside. But you've called us to be servants in the way that you have already served us. So we pray for your grace, for your strength to do just that. For we know that left to our own sinful devices, we could never fulfill this calling. But we know that Jesus lives within us. And we pray that by the power of his grace, we would live for others making them first so that we could be last. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.